Dewey Murdoch runs CSET, perhaps the world's most interesting think tank. CSET, with a budget minuscule compared to the CSIS and Brookings behemoths, has brought real rigor to debates ranging from U.S. chip policy to high-skilled immigration. Dewey was an engineering physics PhD who previously worked at IARPA under the legendary Lisa Porter and also spent some time at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. So, Dewey, can we get the sort of brief primer on what CSET is and what it does? So CSET's designed to connect policymakers to high-quality analysis of emerging technologies with a particular focus on the implications, the security implications, the national security, the global security implications of that. Uh, we're designed to be nonpartisan. That we support decision-making. Everything we write is designed to be people who could, that pe- what people can read um, and who are busy and who are trying to actually make policy decisions and uh, investment decisions. So CSET was set up to create openly available analysis. I think we've published 147 uh, pubs, and I think we've like posted a, a, quite a number of translations to be able to be quickly digested by people who are super busy to answer questions as it relates to AI, machine learning, uh, advanced computing, uh, the intersection of cybersecurity and artificial intelligence. And now we've just recently started doing biotechnology uh, security-related areas. We don't take money from governments. We don't take money from corporations. We're philanthropically funded precisely so that we can manage that conflict of interest, so that we can answer questions honestly, we can speak truth to power, and we can do it in a way that allows people to see the bigger picture rather than just answering a particular question that they've paid us to answer. We're now, which they don't do, they don't pay us, so we can actually come back and take really good questions and give them answers that are, are extremely helpful. So let's talk a little bit about IARPA and what it was and maybe lessons you learned watching one I guess like watching two research organizations be stood up now from IARPA to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and what you took away um, as you were present at the CSET creation as well. So uh, IARPA was was set up to fill a uh, hole in the R&D space, particularly as it relates to the intelligence community, by taking on the high risk, high payoff questions and doing it in a public way to really capture the best and brightest uh, across the country and even the world. So in that environment, a lot of lessons were learned. First of all, was one that was learned early in DARPA and it was transferred to IARPA is um, give your program managers a lot of latitude, but don't let them stay there very long, which means that you could, it motivated everybody because they knew they were trying to make as much difference in a, in a short period of time as possible, which made for an incredibly intense and also very fruitful uh, working environment. A second thing that we learned was being extremely fair when evaluating good ideas. Be meritorious. Sometimes you you see people with really good ideas and you're like, um, oh, but I don't know. I don't really know them. I don't really know how they would perform. And you tend to gravitate toward the community that you're more comfortable with. IARPA was willing to take those risks and actually work with organizations that hadn't worked with the intelligence community before, but had really fundamental new ideas. Uh, and that was really liberating and realized you can um, stretch and go into new spaces. So now let's take us to the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which um, was probably around for a few years before you showed up. Uh, yeah, when I interviewed at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, I think there was 25 people who worked for uh, the organization. When I left, I think there was like 200 plus. Uh, so it was in a major phase of growth while I was starting. So the neat thing about the Chan Zuckerberg initiative was that the founders were not afraid to really 
shoot for the stars. They were trying to build up in the next 80 years, they wanted to build a foundation to be able to cure all diseases. When you first hear that, you're like, wow, that's really ambitious. But because of that ambition, they were willing to take risks. They were willing to try some new ideas. And one of the things that they decided to try was uh, an analytic capability, which was basically to help scientists stay up to date with research happening all around the world uh, and being able to give them useful resources and be able to focus their attention on where they needed to. And that was a pretty exciting uh, space. And a lot of philanthropic organizations weren't uh, willing to take that engineering task. They wanted to give money to someone else, but taking on that engineering task is really the inspiration that I learned from working with the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is engineer well, hire high quality engineers yourself and actually build useful things. Another community which doesn't spend a lot of time engineering things and building and, and sort of building products is the DC think tank universe. So Dewey, was solving all disease not enough for you? Talk a little bit about the genesis of, of CSED and, and why you were excited about why you're excited about that opportunity. So to be able to answer that question, I actually have to roll the clock just a little bit back. So I was trained as a computational physicist. I had an engineering physics program. I thought I was going to be a professor. That was like the dream I had. While I was studying, 9-11 happened. I had a bunch of things changed about our nation. And while I was tending, intending to be a professor, I was intercepted by uh, the U.S. Army, the intelligence community, and given an opportunity to do a job that I had no idea it existed. I got the chance to do analysis um, and help people make decisions with data that were like significant DOD partnerships, investments, risk uh, models, and all these things that were extremely benefited by using data wisely. That decision support role uh, was, I just fell in love with it. I mean, it was incredible to be able to help people make useful decisions that they were going to have to make anyway. I mean, even if you didn't show up, they had to make a decision and you helped them make it a little bit better. Um, the complex decisions that the DC space works on, the national security space, are incomparable. There's no other place that deals with issues that there's no way you're going to have an easy answer. It's always hard. But being able to wrestle through those problems and answer with really insightful questions is what I fell in love with. So Dewey, who's worse at using data to answer questions, the FDA or the intelligence community? Oh, boy. That's a great question. But I, I think I'm probably going to sidestep it slightly. But I think... um I think a lot of organizations want to use data. So it's not like it's their heart is saying, well, I'm just going to make this heuristic argument because I'm like wise and wonderful. It's because they don't think they have access to it. Uh, they don't have, they haven't invested over multiple years to collect that data in a form that can actually be used to answer the question. So I think everyone has a heart for answering uh, quantitative, uh, not, not just quantitatively, but using the data wisely to answer questions. Think about it. If you're in front of Congress and you're trying to testify, so why did you make that mistake uh, that was so obviously a mistake now, but at the time, you know, you were just like winging it, right? Well, yeah, because we didn't have any data. We just won it. We just flippantly answered. No one wants to say that. They want to say, no, we looked at the historical data. We looked at what was happening. We looked at the trends and we said, this is why we decided it. Turns out we were wrong is a much more satisfying answer. And so no one wants to not use it. But I think the problem is DC in the policy space is not used to making those kind of investments with technical folks, with being able to accumulate the data, being able to prepare it so that they can actually answer effectively. And that's why I feel like think tanks and government agencies sometimes just 
don't have the opportunity to wisely learn from the lessons from before because they haven't invested in the infrastructure to do, do that. We, have you read James Burton's Pentagon Wars? Okay. I have not. It's a, it's a story of a frustrated colonel who was in charge of the like testing process or who got involved in like the testing process for the Bradley and the entire sort of testing ecosystem, which was built to make, you know, data about like, okay, if you hit the tank here, this is what happens. Like set up all the tests so that they would come out positively because they didn't want to sort of derail the, these billions of dollars, which were already going out, um, out the gate into all of these, you know, all these different communities across America to build these tanks in the first place. And he was sort of like putting his, his body and career on the line saying like, you guys are all frauds. Like this is a sort of captured, captured game. Going from that, you put out the um, uh, the example of the sort of like noble bureaucrat who's trying to sort of justify themselves in front of Congress. But there are also like a lot of people who are less noble than like a Lisa Porter. To what extent do you see the receptivity to the sorts of sort of data driven, sort of like grounded in the science type argumentations that CSET has been putting out and how, if at all, has that changed over the past over the past few years you guys have been working? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you that when I first started doing this type of data analysis in late 2004, this was a very novel approach. People were like, what? How in the world could that even help me answer the question? I mean, people would ask me questions like, well, following the data is useful, but what you really need to do is follow where there is no data. And so where there's no data and you're like, and I look at them, I'm like, you know, there's no data there. So I, I can't actually talk about it. I yeah. mean, I can speculate. But um, anyway, so there was a lot of misunderstandings early in those days. Can you, can, 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 can you do an unclassified example? Oh, I can sure. do a parody Great. of one. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, so you actually mentioned the example with the Bradley. I won't use the Bradley as a particular example, but. When a program manager in the Pentagon is getting threat briefs, they're your best friend before the program starts because they want to hear all about this stuff. They want to hear them because they're trying to formulate it. But once they've actually are executing that project, then you're their enemy in a certain sense. I'm speaking somewhat characteristically here, somewhat cartoony. And so when you're when you're presenting data that says, you know, that module you're just about ready to finish is like not going to work against any of the threats that we're aware of, then basically what you're telling them is going to meet their, they're not going to meet their deadlines. They're not going to hit their target milestones and they're going to be delayed and they're going to be over budget and they're going to get a, they're not going to be perceived as awesome and they're not going to get that promotion that they wanted to go. So you become unfortunately adversarial in that, those situations where, um, and, and the good program managers do the right thing, but you know, sometimes people really want a, a career advancement and it's, and it's hard. Um, but being able to provide like systematic data that says, because the alternative is like, I found this piece of evidence that's scary. Boo, you should be scared. But if you can say, here's the whole trend and, and here's what uh, an adversarial country has been working on. And this is the capability. And you can see back here, this is how much research they've invested, how much money, how many scientists are working on this problem. And then you you chart the time forward and look, this is now looking more applied and you have this information coming in here. That kind of perspective is really powerful. And when you have never seen that kind of analysis before, it's it's super helpful. I, and the thing that was surprising was being able to use open source information because people are saying, oh, well, this is sensitive now. No one would talk about this. Actually, 
It used to be research. So there's actually a lot of people talking about it. There's a lot of dialogue. There's a lot of scientists that you now know are working on these programs are actually saying things about this effort. And you being able to lay out those dynamics and see where the big trends are was was very surprising to certain policymakers because they realized there was a lot more content out there than they had expected. Um, So, you know, you still need to have money coming from somewhere. And the vast majority of it uh, is from the Open Philanthropy Foundation, which is a major funder of the sort of effective altruism community, like long-termism is baked into their viewpoint. What do you think is driving them? And how does that sort of ideology blend or, or, or interact with, you know, all of these sort of longtime American, relatively nonpartisan civil servants who you also have on staff? Yeah. So Open Philanthropy has been an incredibly good funder of CSAT. Um, we, they captured the vision of what we're trying to do. Uh, and they've done it in a way that they haven't put their hands on the steering wheel or the gear shift or the, or the gas pedals or brakes. Uh, what they've done is they've basically recognized that a monitoring capability that tracks what's happening around the world, that identifies data-informed trends, can see where AI uh, machine learning is going potentially off the tracks, where test and evaluation isn't being effectively implemented, and where there's a lot of risk of um, not appropriately getting the talent that's necessary to work on these particular problems. Those shared interests are intersect extremely well with, with CSET's in stakeholder base here in D.C., so because we're here to help answer those questions and there needs to be a monitoring capability, we're not trying to build any fancy technology. Uh, we're not trying to build a, a new AI systems. There's wonderful groups doing that. But I think Open Phil's vision and ours is to basically create a, a nonpartisan way that people can trust is not coming with a bent. It's not trying to persuade people to um, take an advocate stance but be able to be very fair, objective, and be able to allow the U.S. Uh, government and the democratic uh, countries that have you know, similar values to be able to see what's actually happening clearly is, is very in keeping with their goals. Sure. Just to be clear, Carrie Tuna and Dustin Moskovitz. Dustin Moskovitz, of course, a co-founder of Facebook and Asana are the sort of funding behind um, this. And they've ri- written you guys like I guess, two sort of large checks, which like fund multiple years of operations, which is something that pretty much any other think tank not associated with Koch Industries doesn't really have the liberty of doing in D.C. It's interesting because like on the one hand, yes, it's this sort of future based. Okay, we're doing this monitoring. We're being nonpartisan. But like there's a reason we're focusing on A.I., right? There is like one level lower of like ideological underpinnings on why this stuff is important that it'd be great to to get you to, to expand on. Yeah. So I think if we do screw up AI, we have existential risks to humanity in the long term. I mean, we also have a great opportunity to screw it up right now. And uh, I think that being able to provide extremely helpful analysis to stop people or to bust myths that people might be reacting to, but aren't actually true, being able to lay out uh, clear um, paths forward that uh, help busy policymakers be able to understand what's going next. That's very much in keeping with, it might be shorter term, but it's still a necessary insight that will help avoid those long-term risks. So I feel like they're actually nicely aligned in the sense that I can't speak for for all the funding um, uh, perspective, but they did never describe CSET 
as an, a way to stop existential risks. They talked about being able to engage with policymakers to make sure they have the expertise they need to make wise decisions. Uh, and you can, you can, when you read the content, we were not set up as a effective altruist organization. We were there to create a, a way to help people making really critical, life-changing decisions to make wiser ones and be have information and, and perspectives that they wouldn't have otherwise. So I think that the time horizon of what CSET is trying to do in the in the you know the one to five year horizon is essential to get right. And yes, I agree that that one to five year, if we get that wrong, it significantly impacts uh, much longer time horizons. So I think we're well aligned in, in that sense. One of the core operating principles of CSET has to have the, the firewall between funding priorities, which are engage with um, effectively with people making active decisions today, train up a future workforce of policymakers, of people who are familiar with how to use data, how to use quantitative methods, how to be able to make data-informed decisions and, and do that wisely. So that is very much under the directive of our funders. But what we've managed to agree to is we have a firewall between the actual production we do. They don't have any editorial control. They don't review who we hire. And we've come to a, a, a disagreement because we need to maintain that credibility. We're not perceived as having people whispering in our ears, you know, directing us on what we do. And we're so it's so it's actually really important that we maintain that firewall to our funders as well as sure. to us. I mean, the one thing I, I will say, and you don't have to respond to this, is like, yeah, that sounds great. But when there's only one person writing the check at the end of the day, I mean, maybe there's something whispering in the back of your head. But it's it's interesting that like sort of the um, the sort of like Brookings or CNAS or CSIS sort of risk is not like a, um, uh, you know, it's not like correlated with one organization. Right. But if you're too far out of the mainstream, then like you still need a lot of people to write one hundred thousand dollar, three hundred thousand dollar checks to you. And if you sort of like go too far off the reservation or do like wacky stuff like your map of science, it, it, it's difficult to um, to do that sort of thing as opposed to, you know, maybe having a little, you know, uh, OK, like, uh, sure, great. I'm sure they don't call you up and say, like, do you should change this comma. Um, but there is a different, you know, it, it, it is a different organization having one funder or you know, 1.2 if you want to count some of the small grants you guys have gotten, as opposed to having this like more diversified, slightly less interesting, maybe research agenda that you can pursue while at the same time being sort of less less beholden to um, uh, to one checkbook at the end of the day. No, it's an interesting perspective, and I and I totally hear where you're coming from. So far, we've been able to navigate that very effectively. All right. So thinking back to the experiences you've had outside of the national security community, like, are there other sort of policy areas that could really use a $50 million blank check and the sort of um, uh, mindset that CSET has been able to took, take to these sort of tech and national security questions? You know, one of the problems that CSET's been working on, once again, from a national security angle, has been the, the talent capability and the training and uh, development of people with skills uh, that are necessary to implement AI systems safely and wisely. And in the process, I think we've run across a lot of very interesting issues with the educational system and processes that are as implemented in the U.S. So I realize there's a lot of people who are working in the educational space. 
but there are a lot of potential policy actions that can be taken there. And the reason I bring it up is because we've bumped into it here within CSET. Um, there's, there's a lot of questions that are extremely important in other technical areas. And I think, you know, emerging technologies is obviously a broad area and AI is only one part of it. Uh, so there's a lot of questions. Biotech actually was one that I felt so strongly about. Uh, we now have a seed funding in that space, and we're hoping to actually respond to that need from a national security perspective. There's a, a tremendous amount of risks uh, in the ethical asymmetries of how people implement and do research in AI across different countries. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that line of inquiry. So I sent, essentially, we felt like there was a gap uh, and we were trying to, with a very small amount of funding, prove to ourselves that this is actually worth exploring. So biotech, is a, it, there's a huge amount of threats in that space that are relevant to national security. Yeah, my, my pitch, and I'm probably not the one to get the $50 million check, but like geoengineering, I feel like there's just a lot of um, uh, sort of institutional uh, biases against funding that sort of research, but like it's really important and it really could be a silver bullet in like stopping us from going through a lot of pain of the next, you know, 15 years of, of changing our, our, our carbon mix. No, you actually bring up a really good point. I, and I wasn't thinking about that when I, but the, there's a whole, uh, there's a, there's a lot of important work to be done in the policy or the translation of technical issues into the broader public and in the policy space in that in the environmental and geoengineering and spaces like that that are extremely important to get um, to get right. Yeah, it, it's always like depresses me when you read these articles about how like crime like gun violence like doesn't get studied because like there's only one source of funding for it. And like the Republicans have like set some criteria around like you're not being able to study gun violence. And, you know, there, there are, you know, same with a lot of this, a lot of like food and obesity research where there's just like such a um, sort of, you know, the, the, the sort of ecosystem does not, you know, promote fair and balanced um, in a way in which sort of one, you know, one like very rich person um, with, you know, not a ton of money if you're a billionaire um, can can really change the terms of a debate by bringing a sort of fresh data driven um, data driven perspectives to um, uh, to the public conversation. Yeah. You know, Jordan, you, you as you were talking, you, you reminded me of another topic in this area of trauma uh, in childhood trauma and adult. There's so much interesting work in this space that is not been really accepted and really adopted in terms of um it's it's one of the most costly uh, parts in the U.S. is like child abuse. Uh, ch ch uh, um, traumatic events translate into adults that have a lot of particular issues, and 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 you know uh, all of us are touched on it. It's not just one part of the demographic that is so important, and it really shapes the fabric of our culture of how we deal with trauma. And it's another area that I think is really worth uh, a lot more time to invest in of that there's these universal checks that people could do to like check for trauma while they're getting a, a medical exam at a doctor's office. There, there's just a lot of interesting things that could be done here. And this is totally outside the national security space, but I think it really speaks to what, uh, at least what reminds me of what you were saying with you no know, criminal justice and all these different things that we're trying to deal with the, the um, symptoms rather than getting at the root causes. And I do think there's these kind of wise investments. Yeah, and because there's, there's just like so much rot in the R&D system 
when you sort of look at like how the CDC, for instance, processes things, right? Like, can you imagine like having a really clean, like independent resource organization, like being able to sort of challenge them and not have it be, you know, Alex Tabarak from Marginal Revolution being the one having to say, no, actually, like fractional dosing might be a good idea. Um, and if like even 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 something like that high profile hasn't gotten the um, the $50 million grant that it needs to, 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 to fund independent research, you know, stuff like stuff like, um, you know, childhood trauma, which is not on the top of, you know, long termism threats to the future of humanity, um, even though that is the sort of philosophy which has captured the kind of like zeitgeist of the people most willing to give money in creative ways in the 2020s. It just goes to show how much sort of more good work there is to be done um, across like all fields of social science. All right. So let's talk about some of these some of these wacky projects that you've gotten up to. What is the map of science? So the map of science is a, a really cool uh, idea. So basically, uh, we take all of the world's research output as much as we can get our hands on, which is somewhere around 90 percent of it is in Chinese, English, about 240 million articles. And then what we deal with is then we, we merge these together because there's obviously duplications and we need to clean the data up a bit. Once we do that, then we can group these research papers into essentially clusters, research clusters that are problem centric. That's the way I like to think of it. Uh, so what they're now, you know, you might say reinforcement learning is interesting. It's very, and it's part of robotic, you know, arm control as part of uh, particular kind of, you know, certain versions of self-driving cars. It's in a variety of different places. And now you can see them centered around the problem. Like for example, Reinforcement learning for soft grips, the things that are like, safe for people to be around, uh, robotic hands. That's really interesting. Or since I'm in the robotic theme, uh, reinforcement learning for being able to see a individual do something and then mimic it. And so these are really exciting because now these are different research clusters. So what you now have is um, we had around 240,000 research clusters, ranging from a few papers to a lot of papers. And and then pruned it down to the ones that were active and alive, which I think was around 126,000 or something like that. Now these 126,000 research clusters, you can do interesting things with. You can say, I'm interested in research that is growing three uh, at the top, you know, one percentile of growth rates of all these research clusters. I'm interested in the research clusters that have a lot of industry engagement. I'm interested in ones that have military funding going on. I'm interested in the ones that have a lot of AI activity. And you start running these sliders and now you've taken a contextual view of what's happening in research. And now you've focused in not by just keywords, which is how people typically do this. They'll say, oh, I'm interested in and transfer learning now or, or gauge theory or some other particular area. And now you can see based on criteria of growth, which is really important for, for national security, because the things that are coming at you most quickly are the ones that you probably ought to be aware of, at least on the battlefield, when there's something, a missile coming at you the most quickly, that's the one you have the least time to respond to. So likewise with research, the things that are advancing most quickly, you need to be out of tent. So now you can filter these down and you can actually get a contextual view and be able to say, ah, here's the research areas that are AI related, growing the most quickly, uh, have military relevance because uh, there's signals of military interest based on funding. And now you can now say, oh, here's the areas I need to pay attention to. And it's an incredible tool. And it's been something that I've been wanting to see exist for almost 15 years. Uh, and it's, it's finally uh, capable. And it, the amount of data, the amount of computation that it took to create that is is quite a, a quite so astounding. What about the sort of 
CSET org structure allowed this to be the organization to make this. I just remember reading an article about Google Scholar from a few years ago, and there's like literally one person on Google working at it nowadays. It's like, this is something Google could have done. Like no one's stopping them, right? But, you know, it it took CSET to create this. And clearly, you know, there are implications for this beyond just, you know, some DARPA, DARPA program manager. There's plenty of like sort of scientific and biomedical impacts. But like setting that conversation aside for a second, what about CSET made this happen? Sure. So the first of all, every problem we pick on or every solution that we work toward building at CSET is motivated by a uh, policy relevant problem. And so the kinds of questions that we're asking are like, you know, where should we put investment? What, where, what are the experts we should talk to? What's the emerging research work that is most likely to disrupt capability? Where is there national competition going on that is really intense? Or where is the U.S. falling behind? So these kind of questions are the problems we're trying to solve. And because we're dealing with emerging technologies, the research literature is actually relevant. Now, we're working to actually connect that research literature to future literatures so that you can, uh, like patents and stuff like that, to get more application view. But the point is, the reason CSET was able to work on this problem was because we actually needed the answer to this problem. Google, for whatever reason, and I'm not trying to point at them. There's not a lot of ad dollars from Google Scholar. Let's, let's. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's little motivation. And there's also a market failure here. So for your DOD strategic planner or your program manager who's trying to figure out what, what risks or what, what trends they should focus on, this kind of capability is really useful. However, if you'd like step back and say, how many people are willing to pay lots of money for this? It's not that big of a, a, a group. So there's no real market to like get an organization to put the millions of dollars to, into to make this work. So it just hasn't happened. So the market failure is one, and then we needed the answers to these problems, to the, to these uh, questions, and this was one way to do it. So we said, hey, why not make this capability available to everyone in the world? Because I, we think they would find it extremely useful. So another sort of big investment that you guys have made is, you know, building up this sort of center of excellence around the semiconductor ecosystem. Some of that was just like spending a lot of money on on data sets, which usually only the sort of like intels of the world can afford. But it was also just like letting smart people spend a year reading about stuff and and not having to like live by this like really tight uh, public schedule or uh, a funders cycle, which wouldn't allow them to sort of go beyond, you know, the four paragraphs of insight, which, uh, you know, your average political science PhD can give you about this sort of thing. How did you end up letting Sife just like, you know, go off the reservation for a while? Well, wasn't that fantastic? It really was. Basically, we asked him to work on important things. And he thought about it and looked at the problem and said, well, if we're in a competition with China, where and they have clearly said it, said publicly what their intentions are for their computing capability. Well, let's see how well they're doing. Let's see what's going on. Where are the choke points where they would end up being slowed down? What would accelerate their speed? And he basically came to a semiconductor manufacturing equipment, was like, wow, all of these are in democratic countries. This is where all the capability is. They're really expensive. They're hard to do. The skills that are necessary to build them is extremely high, lots of tacit knowledge. And we really ought to, uh, if we were able to stop that, the proliferation of that technology, it would potentially slow down the development in core capabilities which have security risks. 
this is his thinking. We gave him multiple years to, to work on this and was able to come up with a very clear insight. It's really the credit to him that he discovered this space, but we basically gave him this opportunity to work on topics that generally make policymakers' eyes roll back in their heads because they're like, whoa, what are you talking about lithography for and why do I care? But then because he's at CSET, we were able to connect it all the way to the policymaker. Just a quick tangent on this. I've been in places which had gifted scientists and they were able to like do amazing things with data, models, and all these things. What they were missing, and one of the things I think CSET brings, is the focus on contextualization of the policymakers, what levers do they actually have? What are they actually able to make decisions on? What are they actually able to use as information? And because we trained SAFE and we gave him opportunities to see more and more about how the government works, he was a patent attorney before he came here, he was able to learn, oh, this is what they could actually use. And then he was able to focus that research and do what is normally a very technical and very wonky space and put it in the context so national security individuals can say, ah, this matters to us. While before it was just the technical folks that people were speaking to, now he was able to translate that into language that people could actually use. Two questions. I want to do a hiring one after this, but the sort of national security lens, it's hard to find an issue that isn't a national security issue um, nowadays. And I'm curious, sort of by, by using this as the like lens and the hook, for the majority of your analysis, are there some blinders that you hit or are you worried about the sort of like national securitization of every single uh, policy area in D.C.? So I hear where you're coming from, especially when we have a Congress who's most likely to vote bill is the NDAA. And you're right. There is a temptation to try to make everything a national security issue. So we'll get some kind of action or some kind of funding. Uh, CSET's worked really hard to avoid nailifying every problem when where nailifying is like tr- you know bringing the hammer to every nail, uh, making that everything a national security problem. So there's, for example, the future of work. There's a bunch of really interesting questions about, you know, we'll, how will we work in the future? What will AI do? How will we um, work in this space? Another problem of surveillance, you know, and law enforcement. There, we've done a little bit in those in that space, and we've mentioned some of the future of work. But in general, we've avoided those topics because there's so many competent groups working on that space. And also, we're we're very cognizant of the fact that we don't want to try to turn everything into a national security problem. So we we work very hard to prioritize our research questions so that we put our emphasis on the problems that we think are, are most relevant to the space. Does that answer your question, Jordan? Yeah, that's as close as we'll get. Um, uh, so coming, coming back to your safe arc, there are two parts of the safe story which struck me as discordant with the rest of the DC think tank community. Other think tanks would not hire a patent attorney to like go write about chips for a long time. And also lots of think tanks say that they like keep the policymaker in mind and want to write sort of action relevant stuff. But it seems like you guys do it better. Um, I'm curious, what do you think about hiring and then the mix of professional backgrounds that you were looking to bring into the organization? We worked very hard to uh, try to hire people who were early enough in their career that uh, working at CSET would be uh, particularly helpful. And they had brought interesting skills. So they brought uh, a mix of political, international relation, 
experience, uh, government experience, as well as as much private sector as we could get, as well as the technical and in, uh, intellectual property knowledge that, that we could find. So we assembled this group. And then what we really spend a lot of time on is professional development. We work a lot of time getting people to meet people, trying to make decisions, developing what kind of talking points, um, teaching them to write for that audience, spending a lot of time developing and giving them feedback iteratively over multiple years until they really hone their message to be able to provide that insight. So that's a key part of what CSET does from a professional development perspective, so that when they're done at CSET, they're actually much more prepared to enter the policy make, making landscape and actually perform in their in their roles. Uh, when are you going to start open sourcing all that stuff? Like the training? I don't know. I got really jealous. Emily was like, yeah, we got like a lesson on how to read like the People's Daily the other week. Like that should be on YouTube. No, it's a really good point. And I think we have been around, we're coming up on our third uh, year here at, in existence. And I think this is a, a very fair point. There's a lot of resources we've developed. And if, if we've kind of proven that they work well enough for our individuals, and as we build up that confidence, we probably should share those more publicly because we don't claim any special purview in that space. We, we want the whole, we would love everyone to have this kind of knowledge. Talk about the data team, Dewey. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. So I, I helped uh, form the data team. When I first came, I was the only person on that data team. And I realized that one of the problems um, from my perspective, both in the government, as well as in the uh, private sector, as well as in the think tank space, is that uh, people want data to speak and not to speak. They wanted to sing melodiously and in harmony without actually putting the uh, time into making it actually happen and bringing in the people with the right skill set to make it happen. Uh, at the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, I, I managed a uh, highly competent data science team that was able to do bring in you know cutting edge research, and I really got a taste of how useful that was for being able to build capabilities and actually answer questions. Before that, when I was at IARPA, I got a taste of working with hundreds of highly skilled folks. And what we really wanted to do was build a tiered, uh, a, well, let's call it three plus a foundation system at, C at CSET. We wanted the research fellows that had the context, which I talked about a little earlier. We are supported by research analysts and students who are learning and have a lot of that uh, skill and hard work ethic to be able to build up capabilities. And then the third uh, part was data scientists, software engineer, survey specialists, translators that would provide data and actually have the expertise to put it in the form that analysts could actually use. And then the foundation was operations, external affairs, and editing capacity and all that kind of stuff that really makes it all of this actually work. So the data science team we created, we wanted to make sure that, first of all, they couldn't bring egos. Just because you're the smartest person in the room doesn't mean you should let everyone know that and put people down for that. So they, they needed to be humble. They needed to have apply, interest in applying it. Like what brought them the most joy was not building a brand new doodad, but that doodad was actually useful to somebody that could answer a question. That needed to be their, their motivation. And they needed to have really strong applied analytic capabilities, research methodology. They needed to understand mixed methods, like for quantitative as well as, you know, interviews, structured interviews, surveys. All of these things need to come together so that we could actually give our research fellows and research analysts solid advice of like, yep, you can't do it that way. You're going to have a biased answer. 
you do it this way and you'll get a much more robust solution. And having that kind of expertise as advisors to the research fellows and research analysts has proven really quite exciting because that makes the entire team stronger because we all learn from each other. Uh, so Dewey, uh, your old boss is now in the White House. What does that mean for CSET? Um, is this like a validation that the president like hired five of you guys? Ever since we were imagining CSEP, even before it existed, we believed it to be a fertile garden, if you may, where people could grow in their strengths and actually create, uh, produce fruit that would be uh, useful to the U.S. government and to public service organizations and around D.C. And, and eventually the world. So that was actually one of our core goals was to have people who were at CSET who were trained here would go into public service. So I think we've had about 92 people who have been on our paid staff at CSET. We think we currently have about 58. 21 of our alumni are in public service. They are government employees, they're contractors, and there's, this, and there's a few people who are in IPA or detail positions. So no kidding, we're stoked about this. This is exactly what we want to do. We want people to develop the skills here and then go forward. Now, you could argue Jason Matheny, my old boss and, and a good friend of mine, uh, had a lot of those skills to begin with. But I would say that his time at CSET allowed, because we were dealing with so many challenging questions and the analysis actually informed his thinking about what the best directions were to go. So while we didn't train him, he was sufficiently trained to begin with, uh, we gave him more concrete ideas that he could then use that were in his you know, quiver, his proverbial quiver, the arrows that he could now use to help answer uh, and give direction on where to go. What have the biggest challenges been for you sort of uh, adapting from running data science teams to running the whole organization? No, I think uh, this is exactly what I'm, I've been doing this ever since like mid-February, I think is when the transition happened. I mean, I was officially announced, I think in July, to become the full-time director of uh, CSET. This is an incredible opportunity because I, I spend a lot of time working with funders, building trust in our analysis, working with people who are trying to wrestle with decisions, helping connect them to some of our analytic products that we've created and help us pull questions that we should, we should prioritize because they're really important to do, to focus on. So I think from, from my own self, I'm growing a lot. I've always been the guy that when you need something done, you ask Dewey, he will do it. He will do it well. He'll get it done well and perform and provide all the capability you asked for. But now in this new role, we've got an incredible team that can actually do all that thing. So contextualizing it, being able to work with all those soft skills, relationship building, building trust, this is an incredible opportunity for me to grow in my own career arc to develop those incredible skills. Do you think your 27-year-old self would look would look at Dewey today and be like, man, this guy's so soft. Like, what are you talking about, soft skills? I want to build some pro I want to you know, make some new algorithms. What the hell's going on here? Oh, you are so right. I had a scorn for managers because managers didn't do anything useful. They didn't work. They didn't do anything useful. Why would we uh, reward them so well? Thankfully, I've matured a lot since my 27-year-old self uh, and realized, and actually started at IARPA under Lisa, where I realized that if I did my job well, I could get 100 people to do work that it would have been just me before. And it was incredible to see the outcomes because we could get so much more done and we could achieve the things that we desperately needed as a, as a nation or as a, in a, from a technical space. 
uh, capability. And, and I, and I really became, um, uh, committed to the, the fact that management actually is important. In fact, I remember my first day at, at IARPA, I go to my boss and say, you know, I need Mathematica. I need my modeling tools. I need all this data processing tools. And he said, this is Peter Heinem. He smiled at me and he's a man of few words. So I will never be able to reproduce exactly what he said. But he basically said, come back to me in a month and let me know if you still need those. And then I realized a month later, I'm like, nope, sir, I, I actually don't. I'm fine. Uh, I've got a phone, I've got email, and I've got lots of really capable people around me who will do amazing work. So yes, my 27-year-old self would have sh shaken his head in, in sadness. But I, as I matured, I realized you can get a lot more done through management than uh, just doing yourself. Just because we get to do this back to back, you know, what, what are some lessons that you learned from the indomitable Lisa Porter? Oh, Lisa Porter had an incredible impact on my career. The interesting thing in working with Lisa is she, she was both fantastically inspiring and also just a little bit intimidating. Uh, so she was able to inspire me to work very hard. But what she did is she made sure that the standards of what we were trying to achieve, both technically um, and financially, was and as, as well as mission impact, was the highest I'd ever seen. So when we wasted money, when something didn't go well, and you know, the, the, when we wait, and that didn't go so well, she would actually look at you, you know, like you realize you just wasted uh, taxpayers' dollar. And it was that kind of standard that just kept inspiring me to do better, make sure it was clearer. And the other things I learned were like ethical standards, like, no, it, it's not okay to have uh, a conflict of interest uh, of any form. I'm sure there's a lot of other lessons when I'm not. Yeah, I mean, of. it's it's interesting. So, you know, Lisa Porter was on the on the show a few weeks ago talking about her experience doing R&D for the acquisitions community and the Department of Defense. And you can only imagine the amount of sort of psychic pain uh, which she must have gone through watching. I mean, Dewey, how much money could you ha possibly have wasted at IARPA? What, like $5 million or something versus like the tens of billions pumped into the F-35 and God knows whatever, you know, vaporware that she, you know, because the forces are larger and sort of more powerful in that community that even someone as tough and driven as, as, as Lisa is not able to, you know, tempt. Uh, tame that beast. Anyways, what one last question for you. Are there any other sort of like CSET special sauce points that we haven't quite quite explored yet? We've really worked to hire people who are respectful of others. They respect their time. They respect their in, their perspectives. They respect their diverse experiences. And in the process, they're very kind. And that as a very strict hiring requirement has meant all the all the difference for a work environment, a culture that makes it safe to push, to try new things, to fail, to come back and say, well, that didn't work so well, let's try this. To, like SAFE did, move into an area that is not well trodden by uh, think tanks because he knew he had support, he had capable people who respected the view and would give him the time to actually see if he could make this work. And he did, and, and that's kudos to him. But because we're in an environment, a culture that makes it worthwhile to risk and the egos are, are tamped down, people are not trying to posture in meetings to sound who's the smartest. That's a really nice environment to work in. It allows, um, it's, it's a temperate environment that allows a lot of fruit to grow uh, that, is, that is extremely tasty. Temperate, nice, low ego, tasty fruit is generally not what I look for in a China Talk outro song. 
Um, but what do you think? Is there any sort of like, you know, four minute piece of music that you think captures the uh, the CSET spirit that we can end this show with doing? Oh, wow. I would have to think about that. Just a second. Um, all I can think of is uh, sarcastic songs. Um, but, uh, but, uh, no, that's good. That's good. <laughs> yes, please. All I can think of is the end of the world and we know it and we feel fine. Uh, <laughs> um, Sorry, that that's probably not the song to play. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm so sorry. My music uh, index is uh, broken currently. Uh, but uh, it's a, it's a great question that I I will need to get back to you on. Uh, All right, yeah, you got to pull the got to pull the fur. Dewey Dewey Murdoch, thanks so much for being a part of Chat Talk. Thank you, Jordan. I really appreciate the chat. Thank you.